0: Well, I would say that um, first. I say I think Mark should have given a spoiler warning earlier. He started uh, spoiling my preach talking about the transfiguration, uh, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah, we are carrying on our preaching series today called Divine Encounters, and we are looking at uh, the story of the transfiguration, which is a kind of famous story in the Bible. Um, just to give you kind of a brief overview of the series, we've been looking at. Um, we've been looking at encounters. Uh, in the Bible where people have met with God in very particular ways and uh, had this kind of divine encounter kind of moment. And obviously we believe in a God of, of relationship, not a God of religion. So we believe that when we pray to him, when we sing to him, when we open his words in our day-to-day ordinary life, we should also expect to meet and encounter God. So this series has been us looking at characters in the Bible, looking at these moments, and what can we learn from those? As I said, today we're looking at the transfiguration of Jesus. You may have heard this, this term before, transfiguration, but you may not, not quite know what it means. And it really just, I suppose you could just boil it down to kind of trans being kind of part of the word transform and then figure like the, like the kind of body. So it's just the transformation of Jesus is body basically in this story. And it's told in three of the Gospels. So it's told in Matthew, in Mark, and today we'll be looking at the story in Luke. But they're all very similar. You could look at each of them and you're going to come away with pretty much the same narrative here. And we're going to go very deep into this passage today. It's a very rich passage. We're going to walk through it verse by verse and really unpack Scripture together today. But I want to sort of start up front by just almost giving you kind of the the big picture message for today. Like if there's one thing we should take away from today hope there's not just one thing, but if there was, this is kind of it. Um, And that is as Christians, as New Testament believers, our encounters with God should be all about Jesus. It should be all about Jesus. And that may sound a bit like a Sunday school answer. You know, like I was always told, if you're drifting off in Sunday school and they ask you a question, just be like, Jesus. And then you'll probably get the right answer 90% of the time. So if you just say, Jesus, you're probably right. But I don't just mean it on like a simple, it's all about Jesus, Jesus is the answer. What I mean by that is that if you have, is that when we have a divine encounter with God, it should really all be centered around Jesus and not around ourselves. So I guess what I mean by that is when we encounter God, it shouldn't surprise us when Jesus is more revealed than anything that's revealed about us. When we pray, when we open the Bible, when we encounter God, actually Jesus is the one that gets revealed more than anything about ourselves. You see, these Old Testament stories you've been looking at so far in our series are all about God choosing particular people for particular tasks. Right. He chose Moses. He chose Gideon. He chose Isaiah. And they all had these divine encounters with God that prepared them for these great moments, leading people out of slavery defeating their enemies, delivering a message from God to the people. And we can certainly learn a lot from these stories. That's why we've been covering them in this series, don't get me wrong. But there can be a danger when we read those stories that we think we are supposed to be Moses. That Our divine encounter should all look just like the one that Moses had. Or we are Gideon, or we are Isaiah. There's this term used on um, social media these days called main character syndrome. It describes a person who kind of acts like the—they are the main character in the world. They are the main character in life. They think the world revolves around them. Whatever they are doing is the most important thing, which of course makes what everyone else is doing kind of less important. You know, everyone else is a side character who's kind of part of the story, or they're like a villain to overcome. But they are the main character, and there's a danger, I think, that we can view an encounter with God as some sort of unique experience only for us where we are the main character. We are the focal point of that encounter. Our encounters with God, the focal point should be Jesus. I think that's that's clear from the Gospels from the New Testament as a whole. The main character of the New Testament is Jesus. So when we encounter God, whether in his word, through prayer, through a word of encouragement, through some prompting of the Holy Spirit that we test with other Christians, The bottom line is that these should revolve around Jesus and not the other way around. Like a planet orbiting the sun, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people thought that the sun revolved around the earth. But then we discovered actually, no, the earth revolves around the sun. That's a bit like sometimes our attitude is that we need to be reminded, actually, we should be revolving around Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus is the one that we should be focused on in our encounters with God. It's all about Jesus. And again, I'm not, I don't want you to get me wrong here. I'm not saying that God doesn't have particular purposes or plans for our life. I'm not saying he can't prompt us in very specific, unique ways or give us particular direction. And of course, Christians have done amazing individual kind of things in, in the world, you know, just as Moses and Isaiah and people like that did. So I'm not saying that couldn't happen. As Mark's made many clear, an encounter should lead to change and things happening in our lives. But in all of those cases, it's still, I would suggest, all about Jesus, all about pointing us back to Jesus. He is the main character. Him getting the glory, being seen more clearly, that is the aim. So there it is. That's kind of my conclusion. It's like I've kind of given you the answer to to the exam. Um, I do work at university, but of course the thing with exams that that I notice, and I'm sure you know, is that uh, you don't get marks just for the answer, right? You need to show the working out. So that's kind of like what I'm going to try and do do now. You know, how did I come to this conclusion? Where, How did we get to this, this kind of answer here? So I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to just give you the answer, but let's walk through that together and go back to this story of the transfiguration. We're going to break this down, go through the Gospel of Luke uh, account of this story and see this main character of Jesus and what this can teach us about these divine encounters and what it says about him. So let's begin our journey through this incredible story. As I said, I'm going to go through verse by verse. We're going to kind of make pit stops along the way. Um, but yes, let's go through this. It's in Luke chapter 9 and starting at verse 28 and it'll go through to 36. But as I said, we'll make pit stops and we'll talk about various things. But Let's just see what this story can teach us today. So Luke 9, starting at verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. This is Jesus taking his disciples up on the mountain to pray. Let's stop there very quickly. It's easy to skim over this verse. So um, let's go back. Let's stop on that verse quickly because it's an important verse because it kind of links what's come before and sets up what's about to come after. Do you notice that? It starts with about eight days after these sayings. So what? why does Luke decide to say that? He could have just said Jesus took Peter, James and John up to the mountain to pray. But he says about eight days after these sayings. What are these sayings? Why are they important? Well, let's put a pin in that. We'll come to that very soon. I think it's just worth noting that Luke chose to say after these sayings, this is what happens. So we'll come back to those sayings soon. And then the other thing I just want to quickly draw your attention to is, is just that Jesus took a small group of disciples up to the mountain to do what? To pray. And again, I think it's just worth dwelling on this just for a moment, because do you notice the number of times in the Bible it talks about Jesus going away and praying? And I don't know about you, sometimes my, my vision of prayer, my thought of prayer, is it's something that I kind of need always because I'm like a weak human, you know, because I need guidance I need to say sorry. I need direction in my life. And that's why I have to pray. But Jesus didn't need any of those things. And yet he consistently, consistently prayed, didn't he? He didn't need to say sorry. He knew his purpose in life. He'd done nothing wrong. And yet he, we can consistently throughout his ministry see him go away to pray. So I just want to make a note of that. There's something worth noting there I think, about the importance of prayer. But let's carry on in our story. And this is kind of the first, sort of, I suppose, main part I want to focus on. Carrying on in verse 29. And as he was praying, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. These verses are so rich. I'm going to dig in deep here. There's so much we can break down. I think the overarching point, I think Luke is getting across here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. This is, I think, the big thing that this part of the passage tells us. Jesus fulfillment of God's promises. We'll see if this... I'll use the hand mic for now. Yeah. So Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And there are lots of references and imagery here that that go is to show how Jesus is kind of the completion of all that God has been doing up until this point. The completion of all that's been happening. First of all, we have the transfiguration moment itself, right, where Jesus's face, his appearance, his whole body, in fact, changes. It says in the Gospel of Matthew, again, it's in three Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Now, do you know who else in the Bible uh, it's, it's, it's mentioned had a shining face? Does anyone know the answer to that? Moses. Very good. Very good. So let's just quickly... Jump back to Exodus, the story of Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, this is Exodus 34, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And then it goes on. When Moses finished speaking to him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what had been commanded. And they saw his face was radiant. And then Moses put the veil back on his face, until he went in to speak with the Lord. So there's a direct connection here between what happened to Moses and what's happening here with Jesus. Whenever Moses went to speak with God, his face was radiating, was glowing, was, was shining. But do you see in, in this account of Jesus, Jesus isn't going somewhere else. He isn't going to meet with God. It's like he's he's actually the one radiating the glory himself. Do you see that in verse verse 29? Uh, sorry in, in verse 29 of um of Exodus. It says, Because he had spoken with the Lord, that's why Moses was shining. But in our in our story, Jesus just himself shines. He isn't reflecting anyone else's light. He is the one generating the light. It's another sign, I think, that Jesus is who we we think he is, who God says he is. He is God Himself. He is shining, and not just his face, his whole body. So this is the first little hint that this is that Moses was the shadow of Jesus, the real thing. Moses was the reflection of Jesus, the real thing. And remember how I said Luke chose to mention after these sayings, before the Jesus, Jesus went up on the mountain, but let's have a look at some of those sayings, because I think now is where they become quite relevant. Again, these are all in Luke 9, so these are all literally right before we read this story. So in, from verses 18 to 20, it said, now it happened that he was praying. This is Jesus again, praying alone. He's praying again. And the disciples are with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So some people are saying, Jesus is Elijah, reborn. But of course, then, not long after, we see him next to Elijah. And in fact, Jesus is shining next to Elijah. So I think, again, this is just a sign that, yeah, Peter had it right. He's not Elijah. He is the Christ of God. He He is the one that is the chosen one, the one that is... Promised, and again we add, we see here that Jesus isn't Elijah. In fact, this is kind of a direct contrast. Elijah is the shadow of Jesus, the real thing. Elijah is the kind of reflection of Jesus, the real thing. And the other saying I think it's worth bringing up at this point is the one that happens immediately before this passage. So right up until verse twenty-seven. Remember, we started in verse twenty-eight. So in verse twenty-seven, um, it, Jesus is kind of doing this very famous. Uh, 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 saying about take up your cross daily and follow me. Then in verse 27, he says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So that is some of you here will be alive when you see the kingdom of God. And this verse is often debated about what it means, what it's talking about. But in all three gospel accounts, this is literally the line immediately before the verse, immediately before the transfiguration. In all three accounts, and so I'm of the view that I think what Jesus is talking about here is that those three disciples he took up to the mountain are seeing like a glimpse of heaven. They're seeing a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Some of you here will see the kingdom of God before you die. Well, I think he's literally that said, and then it says and eight days after these sayings, this happens. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think, this, I think scripture is pointing us to the fact that these three disciples are seeing something amazing here. They're seeing the kind of promises of fulfilled. In this case, a promise that Jesus makes is literally fulfilled in the next verse. And let's dwell a bit more here on Moses and Elijah, because it's amazing, isn't it? Moses and Elijah next to Jesus. And they carry so much weight and so much meaning behind why those two characters in particular are there. Firstly, I think Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, we have here the man who literally wrote the Old Testament law. And we have the man who many would consider, certainly the Jewish people would consider, the greatest of God's prophets. The law and the prophets. And what did Jesus say about the law and the prophets? When Matthew 5:17, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets were like the primary way God used to kind of guide his people, Israel, in the right direction. The primary way he would kind of communicate with them and show them how much they need him. But that was all about to change with Jesus. We know that Jesus was now the way. Perhaps the way used to be through, in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, all these other things. But they're all, again, a shadow of now Jesus, the perfect way. And Moses and Elijah, I think, also represent, as I sort of alluded to already, this kind of shadow of what Jesus was to accomplish in full. They are in part what Jesus does in full. So Moses was the redeemer. He led God's people out of slavery, out of of Egypt. But we know Jesus is the true redeemer. He leads all of us out of slavery to sin and death. And then Elijah was the kind of this, the voice of God, the one who bring a message from God to God's people, Israel, when they needed to hear it. But Jesus is literally God. He's the true, clear voice of God. As we'll come on to, God says, listen to Jesus. Jesus's voice is like the true, perfected voice of God. Again, Moses, the Redeemer, but Jesus, the true Redeemer. Elijah bringing the word of the word of God, the voice of God. Jesus is the true voice of God. I think all of this goes back to just demonstrate that how God is a promise keeping God. That Jesus is the fulfillment of so many promises. All these things that were once in part and now we see here in full in one man. The face of Jesus is shining as kind of a proof that, yes, he is who he claims to be. He's he's, 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 Christ, he's the Christ. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And then having a Moses and Elijah there is like a big sign saying, remember what I did before? Well, here is the one who is the fulfillment of all of that. He was the one who brings all of that together. It's all about Jesus. And when we look at him, when we see him for who he is, we see that he is the fulfillment of all God's promises. So that's, I think, the first thing, the first, I guess, big thing I want to kind of highlight here about Jesus. Like I said, it's all about Jesus. It's all about what does this tell us about Jesus? Let's continue our journey now through this passage, coming on straight straight into verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And again, we'll just pause there for a moment. Isn't it funny how in scripture so many times we see characters sleeping in situations that seem impossible to sleep through? Um, and we don't know if we're supposed to take this as a good or a bad thing, or just a, maybe a neutral thing. You know, Luke doesn't comment on it. Certainly Jesus doesn't comment on it. Um, certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane, when these same disciples get asked by Jesus to stay awake and watch and they fall asleep there, I think we are supposed to take that as, oh dear, that was a bit of a, a bit of a mistake. But equally, we, we, we then see in other stories, Jesus sleeping through a storm, right? He has so much faith in the Father that he's, he just sleeps through it. And he has to get woken up by the disciples. So I don't think we can take necessarily that, again, this was a good or a bad thing for them to be asleep. But just a kind of side note, which is that I think the Bible often talks a lot more about and is a lot more concerned about rest than it is about sleep. It's a lot more concerned with us in our life, getting, getting good rest than necessarily getting good sleep. And I'm saying that as someone who has three young children. So sleep is a big concern for me. Uh, pause, but, but I guess I just wanted to sort of, this is a challenge for myself, really. But I just, I just wanted to sort of highlight that poor sleep is not an excuse to not encounter God. Yeah, like not, <laughs> you know, like how many encounters with God are we going to miss out on if we go, oh, but I need my sleep. You know, I'm too tired to, to pray, or open the Bible, or do these things. And we, we all feel this way at points. And again, I feel like right now I have like almost the ultimate excuse already lined up. But how many moments do we miss out on if we if we would sleep through it? So it's just a challenge for myself as much as for anything uh, or for anyone else. Let's carry on to the next verse, verse 33. And then as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Again, I'm not sure if the Bible is suggesting necessarily judge Peter here. Um, It's unclear if perhaps this is him being a bit foolish, if he's maybe just half awake and he doesn't know what he's saying, or maybe just Peter doing what Peter does, which is just kind of running in without thinking, speaking and acting without thinking. But I do think we are supposed to take from this that Peter is in some way misunderstanding the situation, you know, not knowing what he said. He's clearly misunderstanding something. You see, Peter in this moment is wanting to set up camp, you know, quite naturally, I suppose, in this place. He can tell this is an incredibly significant moment. He's like, Yeah, can we just, can we just stay here? But we can't always stay on the mountaintop experience, can we? In fact, it's inevitable that we move on from that. you can all have moments in our life where this incredible thing happens, but so often we're desperate to stay in that moment when actually that moment was there for a purpose for us to then move on to something else. It can be tempting to kind of seek out those experiences only and want to remain in that kind of high. But actually, as Mark's already alluded to, this is kind of a pivotal point in the story of Jesus in a way. There are only two times, and we're going to see this is the second time here, but there were two times when God speaks over Jesus during his ministry. The first time is at his, his baptism by John the Baptist. Uh, and that kind of kickstarts Jesus' ministry. And then many commentators say this second time is almost the point where he shifts and heads towards the cross. So this is a significant moment. This is a significant shift in his journey. But if, he, if he'd if he chosen to stay in that mountaintop, he would never have led to the cross. They have led to something even greater. And I think it could be very tempting for us when we have those amazing moments to just try and replicate them, right? We, we want to replicate that moment over and over again when something great happens. But actually, maybe that's, that was there for some greater purpose. Maybe that was there for you to move on into something else. And then let's just move on to the final verses of this. And then we're going to kind of again linger here a bit longer. I've got a bit more to say on these. As he was saying these things, he says, that's Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything they had seen. So this is the culmination of this amazing event They've got to the mountain to pray. Jesus was shining. Moses and Elijah appeared in this amazingly meaningful picture. And then finally, God speaks. And if God speaks, you know, whatever he's going to say has got to be incredibly significant. As I said, there's only been one previous time we've seen God do this kind of declaration over Jesus. So when he speaks here, he does two things, really. The first one is he just affirms straight away who Jesus is. This is my son, my chosen one. And again, in, in, in some of the other gospels, it says, this is my beloved son. So almost echoing the, the phrasing, echoing what happened again at, at, at the baptism of Jesus. So he affirms who Jesus is. But then he only says one more thing, doesn't he? Just one more thing. So what is God, the God of the universe, say, you know, speaking clearly in this moment? What's he going to say? He just says, listen to him. Listen to him. God could say anything in that moment. He could say all sorts of things. And he just says, listen to Jesus. And that really is the kind of big second point. Again, it's maybe really obvious, but God just just wants us to listen to Jesus. It's almost as if everything had built up to this message. Everything that's happened up until now is kind of leading to, to this. It's like God knows that our natural inclination is not to listen to Jesus. And that inclination is to be kind of willful and be like, oh, I want to do things my own way. And it's almost like everything in this story has like been a, a kind of a buildup of Jesus's credentials, right? He's First of all, he's shining. And you're like, oh, gosh, he's, he's shining. Then Moses and Elijah are there, these incredibly important characters. God says, this is my son, and then he says, listen to him. And it's almost like all those other things. It's like, how could you not listen to this man? Look at his credentials. He's literally, all this has happened. He's got Moses and Elijah either side of him. He's shining bright. I've told you, he's my son. Why would you not listen to him? When we see the glory of Jesus, why wouldn't we listen to him? See, that was God's greatest concern, is that we listen to Jesus. It's such a simple thing, isn't it? And we've been saying throughout this series that divine encounters, whether large or small, should all lead us to kind of respond in some way. And in this one, the great thing is the response is there. It's spelled out for us. This is how you should respond, disciples. This is how we uh, should respond to this story is listen to Jesus. It's clear and it's simple. This is not one of those cases where it's about a particular character in a particular time. Like when we read the story of Moses, we shouldn't be reading it thinking, now how do I become exactly, how do I lead my people out of slavery? And we read the story of Gideon, we go, how, how do I defeat my enemies? Like that, that, that's not always the message for us. But this case, this is, for, this is for us. This is for every one of us. This is for every Christian to hear. Listen to Jesus. We are all called to do this. And now what does that mean, then, to listen to Jesus? Well, I would suggest, first of all, that everyone in this room right now is hearing Jesus. As we unpack the Bible together, as we look at the Bible together, I think everyone here is actually hearing God speak right now. That is, that is I think, just what's, ha- what's happening in this room. But there is a difference, I think, between hearing and listening. But I want to just kind of distinguish a little bit, because you're all hearing me, but I don't, know how, I don't know if you're all listening to me, being honest. Let I me mean, just look around. Okay, yeah, Marvin is. I'll do one by one. I know. Um, but I guess the difference I want to just draw quickly is that hearing is quite passive, whereas listening is active. Like when God says, "Listen to Jesus," it doesn't just mean get more head knowledge about Jesus. He's just he's saying, "Pay attention and act on it." Like I would say to describe listening, I mean, this is probably a bit of a crude understanding, but listening is basically hearing plus a response, hearing plus action, hearing plus something's going on in there. Something's digesting in there, something's going to come out of there. Jesus described it actually very clearly himself in Matthew chapter seven, when he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he goes on to say, those who hear my words and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. But you notice he says, those who hear these words of mine and does them, right? It's not just about hearing. It's about hearing and then doing. It's not about just hearing. It's about actually then acting on it and making it actually a reality in our life. So listening to Jesus, actually actively listening, I think, is what God is saying when he says, listen to Jesus. And again, what does that look like? And again, I'm just going to give you the sort of Sunday school answer. You know, if you're drifting off in Sunday school, you could say Jesus, or you could say the Bible, or you could say prayer. So I'm going to say, what is the clearest way I think you can listen to Jesus? I would, I would put it to you that it's through the Bible. Strangely, the best way to listen to Jesus is to look at what Jesus actually said. Isn't that a crazy concept? <laughs> Isn't that wild? We have, a, we have the Bible that tells you exactly what Jesus said. And yet so many of us think that we're going to get it some other way. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that God can't, can't communicate with us through other means and can't speak to us through in our prayers and prompt us and through Christian brothers and sisters. But I guess so many of us neglect something that's so clear and right here in front of us. The word of God is right here. So listening to Jesus, I think, is is so important because Jesus even himself says, as he was leaving this this earth uh, towards the end of his ministry, and he talks about the Holy Spirit, he says the primary purpose is for this. In John 14, from verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit, the the primary purpose that Jesus says the Holy Spirit has is to teach us and bring to remembrance what Jesus has said. That is, the Holy Spirit is there to help us unpack and understand the Bible. It's supposed to help us to, to know what Jesus has said. So if you want a divine encounter, the Bible is the place to start. The place where you can literally read what Jesus said. You can literally look at the scriptures that he preached about and taught of and valued so highly you Remember, he said to abolish, not uh, to to not to abolish, but to fulfill. Yeah. So the scriptures, the the Old Testament is very valuable. And then even to read about what his disciples did in the, the early church and what happened there. This is all such amazing, valuable stuff that we just, I think, neglect sometimes when we think about divine encounters. We think of something so much more grand and yet we have it in the palm of our hand. And don't get me wrong. It's not I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying like, oh, yeah, just we can just crack open the Bible and you can just read it and then you're just going to hear from God. And just, you know, it is, it is difficult because it's active. It's listening. It's engaging. It's, you know, grappling with the Bible is difficult. But I do genuinely believe it's the surest way to encounter God, to listen to Jesus is to go to the Bible like it's helpful to remember as well, the Bible isn't kind of just a book that we're reading. We should expect it to kind of it's almost like hit us back with something, to challenge us. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged short sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is not just going to be something that we read passively, but it's, it, it may challenge us in, in some pretty fundamental ways. But you may be thinking, yeah, but how, how do I make that happen in the busy schedule of life with everything going on in my life? How, how do I actually spend time to hear from God? Whether it's opening the Bible, whether it's praying, whether it's meeting up with people to talk about um, kind of life together and share as Christians, how, how do I fit that in? It sounds it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds great on paper. But what does that look like? And again, I haven't got all the answers. You know, God's instruction is very simple. Listen to Jesus. He doesn't then give us a whole list of, and here's how you do it. Here's the five point plan. He just says, listen to Jesus. But let's, I, I, I just want to, again, draw attention to a couple of things Jesus does. Do you notice that Jesus often... Goes away from the crowd with either alone or in small groups to do these things. In in this case, in this story, it literally begins by him just going up to the mountain with a few friends to pray. How often do we kind of carve out time from our busy schedules to do that? How how often do we carve out time to say, I'm just going to take that time away. I'm going to either be alone or maybe with one or two other people. But I'm just going to carve out time to just kind of to just pray to just read the Bible, but just to literally carve it out as like a quiet time. And again, it seems so obvious, right? These are all things that if you've been in church, you've probably heard for years and years, yeah, you should do these things. But it's because, it's because it works. It's because this is what, this is the model of Jesus. And remember, it's not about like cramming in as much time as possible. I'm not saying how many hours in your week can you, can you do, but it's about creating space to listen. To actually take it in and almost to kind of respond in your heart to what you're hearing, what you're reading, what you're what you're hearing from God. Like in my life, I have found that, you know, building in patterns to do this is probably the most helpful way. Uh, I know we come from a bit of a church background that perhaps we we value spontaneity um, and we kind of sort of scoff a bit at like ritualistic things. But as humans, we are we were created to live in rhythms, to live with patterns in our life. And so having a regular time or building something in that you kind of always do as part of a routine, I think is really, really helpful. Like I've had seasons in my life when on my journey to work every day, I have like a 10 minute bus ride, let's say. And then that would be the point where I just try and read like one chapter of the Bible on that bus every day. Like I know I've got that time there. So maybe I'll fill it with something that's going to be helpful and fruitful. Like I've had seasons where uh, near my work, there's been like a weekly, like a lunchtime Bible talk. And I just make sure I go along to that every Thursday lunchtime. I'd go along to that. And it's like a regular weekly thing, just build it into my into my schedule. I've had seasons where I've met up with particular friends. And there's a particular friend that every time we'd meet up, we'd, you know, we were going to chat and hang out, play some games and stuff. But first we were like, OK, we're both Christians. Let's just read the Bible and pray together beforehand. And you know what? It just I don't know why. It just felt like almost then after you know after we'd done all that, we'd almost like we would earned the kind of the other time we were spending together. But it felt it so felt so actually like felt felt so kind of filling and, and it was great to do that. And we just built in every time we meet met up, we're like, before we do anything else, let's just read the Bible and pray together. Again, we just I just built it into patterns in my life. I'm not saying it again, it's not one size fits all. You know, God hasn't given us kind of this sort of perfect list of instructions although again this is where the the new testament as a whole is really helpful look at the early church and what they did as well i think i'm sure all of us in this room can think i could be i could have a bit more frequency in devoting time to this and certainly go a bit deeper into it and i guess my final piece of little kind of i suppose advice on this or kind of my experience on this is there's nothing wrong with uh, quality over quantity like maybe you plan on like reading through a few chapters of the bible and you get kind of stuck on a point that's okay. Just keep reading that over and over. Pray over it. Chat to someone about it. There's nothing wrong with like, resting in the word of God. There's nothing wrong with, with just going deep into a small part of it. You're not, we're not trying to kind of get you to sort of, you know, everyone here has to read the Bible in a year or you have to do this. It's, it's up to you what, what works for you. But I guess the main thing is, is that quality is the key. Listening is the key, not just hearing, not just taking in as much as you can, but Listening. So we've gone through this kind of whole story here. And I want to kind of swing back to what I said at the start, which is the big point, really, which is, I think, is it's all about Jesus. Divine encounters as Christians, it's all about Jesus. How do we see Jesus better? How do we hear from Jesus and listen to Jesus better? It's all about Jesus. And we've seen in this story that it is all about Jesus. God revealing Jesus's glory, Jesus being the fulfillment of all God's promises Jesus being the one we should listen to. As Christians, that's what I think a divine encounter looks like. Seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, listening to Jesus. So I guess the sort of challenge to kind of conclude this for me and for you is that I suppose, how, how do we change from this? We've said throughout this series that divine encounters should kind of result in a, a response. They always result in a change in some way certainly in this encounter, the disciples were changed by it. Peter, James, and John, we know were changed by this encounter. Peter, who was the key in the beginning of the early church, counted this experience as like one of the linchpins of his faith in 2 Peter 1, verse 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, of his majesty, eyewitnesses, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter talks about literally this moment as an incredible moment and he uses it he says he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. he's basically saying, we're not following something made up because I know I saw him. I saw him on the mountain. I saw him shining. I heard God's voice on the mountain. For him, this was a key moment. And then John, who was on the mountain, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. If you read the start of John, he talks all about the light shining in the darkness. He talks all about light. And then he says this famous verse, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I don't doubt that part of him saying that is literally he has seen the glory of God. He has literally seen Jesus shining. He has literally seen Jesus and heard God say, this is my son. And we don't know much about James compared to the other two, but we do actually know that he was was the first martyr in the early church. In the book of Acts, he is the first Christian killed for his faith uh, by Herod. So all three of these men completely changed by this moment, completely fundamentally changed by this encounter with Jesus. So the message for us, I guess, is, is the same as the message for those disciples on that mountain. Listen to Jesus, but actively listen to him, see him, know him, listen to him. But that's that's where the response comes in when we open the Bible, when we pray, when we receive wisdom and understanding And we hear God speak. Our job is to see Jesus and listen to Jesus. Remember, it's all about Jesus, not about us, but about him. And then like the disciples, we should be changed by that experience. And again, sometimes that can be a mountaintop kind of moment. Sometimes God can break through in an amazing miracle. Maybe there's like a long-term prayer you, you needed answering. Maybe something kind of, you know, com- completely supernatural uh, happens when you're praying with somebody. Maybe, you know, there's just like a change in, in the heart in an incredible way, a complete 180. But so often, actually, I would I would argue that it's often very small encounters that build over time. Like you, We may hear, listen to Jesus on the mountaintop. But then, like the disciples, we have to go and live... Our life and actually do it and actually listen. The disciples heard that. It was an incredible moment. They wanted to stay there, but they had to go down. And then what did they have to do? They had to go and listen to Jesus, do what the voice had said. It wasn't enough to just hear, listen to Jesus. They have to go now and listen to Jesus in their day to day, every day, listen to what he's saying, pay attention. And I'd say that's the same for us. Yes, there could be these amazing moments, but it's really about the day-to-day, living that out, living that out, listening to Jesus, opening your Bible, praying, meeting up with other Christians. Now, Katrina, Katrina and I, we have small children. You may have seen them running around and being too noisy at the front. Um, but when we're trying to teach them things, when we're talking to them, uh, it can often be a bit unclear if they're, if they're really listening. You know, you say things to them over and over again, particularly when they're very small, or even when they get bigger, over and over again. You don't know if it's really going in. Are they listening? As they get older, it has become clear that they they were listening. But you don't see that change until many, many, many months and maybe even years later. But it it was going in. And I think that is something like the process that we have when we listen to Jesus. It's a slow process. Just because we open the Bible and we come away, we don't go, oh, I don't feel like I experienced anything. Just, Just it is going in. It is sinking in. It may go in, it may take months, it may take years, but it's okay for that moment to not result in some sort of, again, burning bush moment, you know, mountaintop moment. But sometimes it's just a slow, continual, listen to Jesus. That's all That's all we're called to do. Again, God's instruction was very simple. Listen to Jesus, very simple. We may not see the change straight away. We may not see something amazing that comes out of it right away, but trust. trust that God is doing something in here. Like, I know I've picked up my Bible many times and walked away unsure how I feel, unsure exactly how my life maybe has changed in that particular moment. But we are just called to be faithful and to listen. that's That's just my kind of challenge for myself more than anyone else, but for all of you as well, is to just be faithful in that. Be faithful in that. To just simply do what God has called us to do, which is to listen to Jesus.